0: Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to share with you how to scale your B2B SaaS business from 2 million to 100 million uh, ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Chris Milligan, CEO at Adepto. Chris, it's really a pleasure to host you. Thanks, Thank you for, for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So. Let's get to know a little bit more about yourself and how did you end leading uh, a Depto?
1: So I started a Depto in Brisbane, Australia. You can probably tell from my Aussie accent. I <laughs> studied HR at university, uh, and I ended up getting into contracting in Brisbane. So I was working for insurance companies and mining companies, and that was really out of university. Um, the first opportunity that I had came from some work experience that I was given. Um, and once that project finished, the insurance company I was with said, hey, do you want to come and be a contractor? We can't hire you because we don't have any headcount, but we've got some budget so we can put you on a, a contract. And I thought, yeah, great. Like I can go and do some contracting work. And I did that and I ended up working alongside the likes of Deloitte um, and INSEAD Business School and we were doing some pretty cool work in leadership development and employee engagement. And then that project finished and everyone said, hey, you know, why don't you go and become a grad or join the graduate program? And I thought, that sounds like a, a step backwards. Like, I'm just using my skills here. I'm good at what I was doing. Why can't I go and do that as another organization? And I really struggled to find a company that would contract me. I was 19 at the time and I people just looked at me like I was a bit crazy. So I ended up going and finding a, a small tier contracting company that I could work through. And I ended up, um, finding a project with a, a gas company and I was making about $500 a day, which was pretty good by then I was 20. Um, and I thought, Hey, this is good, but it's got to be easier because I couldn't find anyone else like me at that age that was doing that type of work. This was just before the you know gig economy was as cool as, as it is today. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I need to help other people like me get connected to businesses who need their skills, and don't necessarily want to go through all the formalities of permanent recruitment or, you know, contracting a big four consulting firm. And so we set out in 2013, Adepto was founded. And initially, the business was actually called Adepto Experience. And it was really about how do you help, because Adepto in Latin means to acquire or to obtain. How do you obtain experience as a young person? And so it was initially actually focused on helping students to get contract jobs, which a lot of people don't know um, right. And it was from there that we then evolved into into the business
0: that we are today. Sounds, sounds amazing. And, uh, and, and it's a very good way of starting kind of our discussion about your scaling up journey, because uh, a topic that I think it's really, really important is kind of the transition from the founding team to the leadership team. And um, it's, it's all about also how, how do we grow those people, uh, as they grow quicker than than the company. So how was this transition? And by the way, what is the ad count today? And how is structured your leadership team? And how was the transition from the founding team to, to the leadership team in, in your case?
1: Yeah, so so when it was founded, I, I was kind of doing everything. So I founded the business when it was that student-focused business. It then became a contract-focused business, just looking at all sorts of contractors because I realized you know, I wasn't a student anymore. And at that point, I And a business partner, a guy called Michael Derwin, who I'd been consulting and contracting with, decided that we needed to help each other because it was very difficult for one person to do it all. And in fact, the companies we were selling to didn't need new people. They needed the technology. So we, in 2015, refounded founded Adepto as a technology business. And so it was Michael and I and one of the early people who had been working through the business, Joel Luther we kind of did everything for the first year. So it was the three of us um, and we just managed the work as it came in. You know, it's very hard to have a role role description uh, at at that point in time. And so um, as that kind of developed and expanded, we recognized that we all had different strengths. Uh, I took a bit of a chief executive type role looking at where's the strategy, where's the financing coming from, what's the fundraising, but everyone's really involved in that. Um, and Joel at the time was managing a lot of the product as well as customer experience work. Uh, it was really then as we started to scale that we recognised having that, that broad view of the work needed and that jack-of-all-trades mentality only scaled so far because we then needed people who understood sales or marketing or customer or product or engineering. And so there was a transition point that happened when we were probably about... 15 people I would say where we really have to start defining the roles that each person was playing while we're still broad. um, It was important to have that. So we're now 42 people um, and we've got our headquarters is now in London. So we ended up, I ended up moving over here. Um, And so one of the challenges we've had is how do you scale the leadership and the business internationally at a really early stage Uh, and keep that culture um, which has been really probably one of our and still is our biggest challenge in terms of time zones and and just getting everybody on the same page.
0: Because it's kind of twelve hours of of difference between Brisbane and uh, and London, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So London's always on calls very early. Brisbane's always on calls very late into the day.
0: So that's a great challenge, kind of set up the company with this infrastructure, in, in, infrastructure. so and, and and you have two founders or three founders or two founders and one early employee
1: Yeah two founders and an early employee you
0: got it And those two founders you went to London and another uh, co-founder stayed in in Brisbane or also
1: uh, So region. I moved to Yeah no I moved to London by myself so we tried to raise some early capital in Australia, yep. and this is in 2015. We couldn't find investment money in Australia. The, the venture market was was quite nascent, and we decided to instead do a, a sweat equity deal with a, a software development company. So they came in and helped us build the first version of the platform in return they got equity, and then we realized we still needed cash in the bank. So I moved to Sydney actually thinking that's the big city I can raise money there, ended up not being so... I did a trade mission to London with the Queensland government and ended up being introduced to PWC who was running a future of work scale up program. And they invited me to participate. So I commuted from Sydney to London for about three months. And then at the end of that, they had an investor pitch day where we pitched and I said, we're raising a million pounds and I'll move here if you invest or I'll move here. So you invest, And we were fortunate to get that investment. So, I, uh, I moved to London where I got my visa because I was already spending a lot of time in London and then had to really rebuild the business uh, from London as our headquarters. Well,
0: that sounds, sounds an amazing story. So good that I asked it. We were missing this amazing part of uh, of the story. It sounds, sounds really cool. And then all the team was kind of built there or, or do you still have engineers or another kind of people in, in Brisbane or, or Sydney?
1: Yeah, so we have 20 people in the Brisbane office and the Brisbane right. office has been the first and you know foundation of the business. As we scaled the decision we took was, and there was a couple of reasons for this. One, the, the financing that I spoke about, but the other thing was we were selling to global 1000 businesses and while a lot of those organizations like AECOM and BDO had mm-hmm. offices in Australia, the decisions and certainly the technology decisions weren't being made in Australia. And so for us, it was really London or New York as the other option. Uh, and for those reasons, we chose London. So what we decided to do was build our commercial team. So sales, marketing, customer success and finance here in the UK, because it was closer to where the decisions were being made. And so we built Brisbane as our products and engineering team. So up until earlier this year, one of the, the challenges we've had is that Australia was, all, albeit very far away, it was all product and engineering, and the UK was all commercial. So those people operate and think about things very differently. So it was only this year when we actually started to hire back in Australia to commercially focused people, and also in London a product and engineering team, which we have now. So we're a lot more balanced this year.
0: Kind of. Two businesses and kind of local businesses with a global uh, leadership, but still, uh, forty people. You don't have you don't have space for too many layers. It's it's still a team that needs to be fluid and without too many bureaucracy uh, at that stage of the business. So that's Thank you, Ryan. Cool. And um, in terms of focus, I, I, it's very interesting the way you kind of and and it happens especially with with small countries, for instance, in Europe, uh, Portuguese companies, uh, for instance, I would say that one of the best examples in Portugal, for instance, is Talkdesk, uh, which has the engineering and product in, in Portugal, also nowadays in, in South Lake City, uh, and of course, commercial offices in, in the Valley, uh, in London, uh, nowadays for, for EMEA. Uh, so this is a system that is being also with the Estonia uh pipe drive uh, which would be one of the examples that would came to to my mind so this is this is a a very interesting model i think that's the difficult part on your case is between london and san francisco is nine hours or eight hours of difference in your case it's another four hours which makes uh even more complicated to to manage as you say especially because usually even in the same office engineering and product with sales and marketing and customer success there is a lot of clash a lot of conflicts uh not being in the same place not seeing each other every single day not having coffees together dinner together this can this can be really difficult to um, to manage so that, that's why i bring the next topic we we all know that in order to scale we need to simplify in instead of complicating things adding too many layers um it seems that your focus was very clear so it was kind of global 1000 um companies did you have the the need to decide what verticals and what kind of units would you chasing inside those global 1000 companies so how did you drive focus um, uh, as, as you started to grow uh, Adepto?
1: Yeah, so we, it was difficult for us because the, the nature of our product, and just to tell you a little bit about that, is that we know that businesses now are using all types of talent to get work done. They're using employees, they're using contractors, freelancers, alumni, and everything in between, and Businesses today don't have a view on all of those worker types. They've got a system that shows them their current employees. They've got a different system that shows them their contractors. And so what Adepto is doing is bringing that all together to give them a single view of their talent. Because that's such a broad problem to solve, you can be pulled in so many directions. And in fact, our proposition is total talent, which is very broad. So we had a lot of conversations about do we narrow that or do we go broad? What's our differentiator in the market? What we decided to do was simplify into really two use cases that you could sell to any large business. So it wasn't about the industry. It was about the use case for that business. The first use case was how do you help a business better see the skills that they've already got, that are employees and understand what people want to do and then match work to those people. So the benefit is, more efficiency happier people and and higher utilization well the second use case was how do we help businesses who are using a lot of contractors bring people in and have a relationship with those contractors without the need to use recruitment agencies and middlemen and have a far more seamless experience with engaging those two people so those were the the two use cases we focused on and the bias for that were either hr or procurement Um, but from an industry perspective we we didn't we didn't simplify. We've got customers from defense to government to mining, accounting, insurance, so it's very broad.
0: And geo-wise, uh, were they located in Australia and then you start uh, kind of hiring them or recruiting those new, these new clients or acquiring those new clients in in the UK? Or um, so any kind of geo-relation, especially with enterprise, we always say that enterprise, it's kind of field sales, it's relationship, in-person meetings.
1: Yeah. So our early customers, when we pivoted to become a software company were in Australia. But when I moved over here, we really stopped driving the growth in that market. And so all of our sales have been in the UK and Europe. UK. So that's where our salespeople have been. That's where our face-to-face meetings have been. One benefit that that has driven is from a, a currency conversion perspective. All of our revenue comes from this side, which is either Euro or sterling. So it goes a lot further when up until earlier this year, 75% of our cost base was in Australia. So we were actually making more money to be able to pay the people that we had in the business. Um, And so that had actually been helpful as a bit of an arbitrage. People don't often think about Australia as a cheap place to hire, you know, product engineers. Uh, and That's what I was bad, thinking,
0: so. I didn't ask that, uh, fortunately, you, you mentioned that, but I was kind of thinking this subconsciously, uh, why else, of course, I know why, because you, you are from there, uh, and you had your contacts there, and of course, contacts is also important to bring the best talent uh, in.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and the other, the other thing I'll say on, on the currency piece, I know we'll, we'll talk a bit about um, cash and, and fundraising, mm-hmm. but one thing we didn't think about when we moved over here was in Australia, our metrics were strong. we were coming up near that magic hundred thousand MRR figure to be able to, to raise a series A. And so the business was at that level of maturity in the Australian market. But as soon as we moved here, that hundred thousand became 60,000 because of the exchange rate and the business was no less mature. It was just that on paper, it didn't look as mature. And so that then meant we had a gap because, we kind of used the money that we needed to get to that magic mark, but in reality we were behind.
0: Very, very good points. Very, very interesting. Um, And in terms of uh, growth ambitions nowadays for tech scale ups, there is this famous rule that we talk a lot about in the show, uh, which is the triple three times and double, uh, sorry, triple two times, and double three times kind of starting at 2 million AR to 6 million AR Then to 18 million, so that's triple two, and then double three times, which will get to um, 18 to 36, 36 to 72, 72 to 144, which is kind of 100 million plus, which is the goal of Venture uh, Beckett Company, one to 10 years, sorry, seven to 10 years. Uh, This is world class of uh, standards, uh, gets to a billion dollar valuation and to a potential exit uh, by IPO or acquisition. What do you think about those kind of aggressive metrics of uh, tripling and and doubling every single year? Are they realistic? It depends on the business. What's your opinion about the formula?
1: I think it's nice as a target. I think it obviously makes sense. Um, It's something that we certainly aspire to. Um, The earlier years, it's easier to hit because of math, but I think as you get on, it also depends on the market that you're in. You know, if others are seeing that it's a successful market, it's just harder to hit those metrics. And what we probably didn't appreciate is the development required into an enterprise SaaS product and, the you know, there's the minimal viable product but then the minimal sellable product. And mm-hmm. what, at an enterprise perspective, that minimal sellable product is, is quite um, the bar is quite high on that because the enterprise is expecting it to do certain things, especially in something like HR that's pretty important and a lot of people touch across the organization. So we invested and continue to invest a lot in products and engineering. And I think if we were to do it again, we would have invested a lot harder in sales to begin with to meet those targets because it's really around getting the name out there and market share and then, if you sell the right vision and take customers on that journey they can help them continue to fund that product development we kind of took the opposite approach which was let's get the product right before we go and scale it so to answer your question i think the metrics are tough and i don't think every business can achieve those um i think it's really important to look at unit economics in terms of what you're selling and how you're selling it to be able to get there
0: got it and kind of before getting to fundraising, which is kind of connected with with strategy. So typically in venture-backed businesses, strategy, it's all about how do we prove the next milestones to to get to the next rounds? And what is the long-term game uh, that we are playing to win the category and to be the first um, to win the category? Um, and and maybe let, let's let stay there as we are discussing strategy. Let's let's combine cash um, in this segment of, of our conversation, uh, which is what were the main lessons uh, kind of raising uh, And let's let's talk about series a uh, because the show. It's much more about um, scaling up. So what were the main lessons for you raising series a for for Adapto?
1: I think for us, it was really around a couple of things. One is that valuation is not the be all to end all. You need to make sure the valuation is fair and reflective of where your business is at because if it's too high or it's too low, it makes the conversation in terms of the next round more difficult because you either haven't shown enough growth and there's potential for a flat round or a down round. Or if it's too low then people are wanting to understand how did you how did you change this so much, you know, what happened here? Why isn't it predictable? That's number one, uh, but not the most important. This is the first thing that comes to mind. The second one is what I think is critical is the investors that you have at the table and the value that they add. You know, we were in Sastock last week, Mike, and we're hearing from yep. some investors and, and one one of the VCs was saying, We're not that value adding, like we're gonna tell you we're value adding, we're just not. We're <laughs> promise you the world and, and then we're just gonna sit back and <laughs> right. and kind of set expectations. and um, Having gone through that Series A, we've now got some great investors on board, who actually, on a daily basis, if you ask for their help, will get stuck in and support. And because they've got that view across their portfolio, which I don't have, they really can have some strong insights into what they're seeing is working, what not is not working. And then the last one is is the terms of of the deal. Obviously, um, you know, we got a number of term sheets, and a lot of them had preference shares and and unfriendly shares. We were fortunate enough that we went broad enough to meet some funds that were quite founder friendly and we looking at how do we just raise in a just in time manner. We'll give you 12 months. Let's hit these milestones. We'll work with you. We'll get to know the business. We'll increase our confidence and we'll raise from there. Not raising two, three years of capital that you don't need. You don't need that right now. So, so why raise that and then have, have that pressure to spend it and also cop greater dilution than is necessary. So those are some of the, some of the, um, I guess the specifics in terms of actually raising going into it. What I think is critical is having the right support around you because it is all consuming. So the other thing that I noticed, cause we didn't invest in our sales team massively until we'd raised a series A, was our sales was affected because I was out there selling. And so because I was the single point of failure on that, we didn't see a lot of revenue growth while I was in the raising process because it's all consuming. Mm-hmm. And so, what I would have done differently is made sure that pre series A, we'd left the investment money to hire one or two salespeople to keep the business going so that I could focus on the fundraise.
0: Very good one. This is really, really good. And in terms of kind of uh, uh, considering a possible move to series B, what do you think are the milestones um, that to or any business from your experience would need to achieve to get there?
1: yeah so series a is really around in my perspective you know you've validated the model you've got customers you've hit some some early metrics and between series a and series b you really need to systemize as much as you can because series b is around growth if you haven't understood how your business designs its product develops its product takes its product Mm -hmm. to market markets its product sells its product grows its use within an organization then adding more money to that other than what's required to stay in business isn't going to be the most efficiently spent. So then that's the key thing. The second thing is we, for example, are looking at that triple growth. So in order to, to have a successful series B, we want to demonstrate that we can continue to triple the business from a top line revenue perspective. Got it. Uh,
0: and so in terms of new geos, uh, there are, some investors that would like to see for Series B uh, that you clearly uh, have a a guide to open a new GU and to keep multiplying. Uh, Of course, if we are talking about uh, a company based out of Europe, I would say the base out of Southeast Asia, it would be kind of the same because it's a very fragmented market as well. Unless you you start with uh, Thailand or Indonesia or uh, Vietnam, uh, or of course, China, you can focus on on China or, or India. Uh, Latin America, I would say this so, but of course, if it is in the US, it's a very different story. Uh, you need to be able to scale again in, in the market. So coming from the UK, in your case, and and, and before being in Brisbane, uh, any kind of geo-proofs uh, to, to investors to, to raise C- series
1: B? I think for us, you know, We've gone the other way around the world, Australia to the UK. The logical next step for us is the US. So for our Series B, we need to be looking at um, US funds that help us with an understanding of the market, but also a validation. Um, it's hard, I think, sometimes to break into the US, but we need to be there because our customers are international and they really require international support. Um, so I think for our Series B, we would be looking at you know, co-investment from the UK and our existing investors, but also getting a, a US fund involved to, to help bring into that market. I think the other thing which is may, may sound obvious, but from an international expansion perspective, it's language. It, the, you know, the thing for us is it really doesn't matter where in the world you are now as long as it's English speaking um, because we can host anywhere, we can spin up anywhere, we can arrange time zones, we're very good at that. But once you introduce those complexities, uh, that's a
0: bit difficult. Absolutely. That's a very good point. And, and you mentioned that's that's uh, being your markets enterprise, uh, London and New York being also five hours of difference in terms of time zone would make all sense with direct flights uh, and multiple choices to, to fly there. Uh, it might be very, very easy um, and of course, you also have Singapore, uh, if they want to expand to APAC, which will be not close, but closer to to Brisbane and uh, yeah, in, very, very interesting. So let's, let's come to uh, execution. So if we have the right team in place, if we do the transition from a founding team to a leadership team, if we keep growing the team um, if we are focused, if we kind of accomplish the milestones that we need to keep funding the business and proving the milestones and keep scaling. Uh, it's all about how how we make this happen, right? And uh, it's about execution and meeting rhythms and uh, the culture of the companies we discuss it, being able to communicate accurately uh, across 12 hours uh, of difference in terms of time zone. So what are some of, nowadays, in general, in, in tech businesses, we all do the kind of the daily, the weekly, the monthly, the quarterly review, the all ends, all of this. So I will not ask you what are the rhythms that you have, but what, what is that special rhythm that helped you to stay, to have everyone in the same page, especially with this uh, huge time zone difference that you needed to manage?
1: Yeah, so we, we've tried a, a couple of things and, and you mentioned a lot of them there, but what I realized about six months ago was that we needed to simplify the decision-making of the business and regionalize and the way we're running it as well. So I had a much broader leadership team that was all reporting into me and it was just getting a bit, it was just getting a bit difficult to manage, not even the time zone, just the number of people. And there was really a need to localize the way we were thinking about the business, not the strategy or where we're heading, but just in terms of how we were treating our teams in each market. So what we did was we simplified into a smaller executive team uh, and that was made up of a head of uh, solutions, sales, customer experience, delivery, and our CTO. And delivery was really around product delivery. What I also did was I split out the P&L responsibility for Europe and APAC into individuals. So our head of sales ran the P&L for EMEA and our head of solutions ran the P&L for APAC. I would still have global financial conversations and make those decisions when one of them wanted to spend money, but it really gave a, a local sense of accountability, which helped us. When that happened, we decided as the executive team to stop meeting so often because we're an executive team. Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows where we are heading. So instead of dailies, we now just meet on Monday and talk about what's happening this week, simplified it to any risk issues or opportunities that we need to know about. And I think that's really helped us to free up a lot of time because we've only got two or three hours each day to talk to the other country. And so if we're spending that every day with the exec team, it's not as effective. That was one thing we did. We also then put a a weekly all hands in place to make sure that everybody understood something from a different function, because as we scaled, there are obviously new people coming to the business, but also some people have never met and still have never met. And because of the time zone, it was important to to bring that sense of company together. Um, and, and then we do the other things, you know, fortnightly retros with each team, et cetera, et cetera. But what we have found has been really important is defining our principles and way of making decisions, using our values as a guiding framework for our way of work and bringing that to life in every way we can. So in each team meeting, value shares, hiring against our principles and really getting that framework in place, so I think is the only way that we've, being able to scale the decision-making of the business because we've also been asleep most of the time on the other time of the making decisions.
0: Absolutely. That's that's a very good point. And I believe that for businesses that are in the same time zone and sometimes in the same uh, location or, or office, that we can have the exactly the opposite problem, which is uh, the temptations while it's come to the CEO to make any kind of decisions, which make, Uh, a burnout of the CEO or decision fatigue of the CEO that will be involved in decisions that don't add any value to the business and at the same time be super, super tired when they really need to do something that is strategic for the business and then can uh, put the business in in a difficult or tough situation. Um, Absolutely. That's that's an amazing uh, point for all businesses to to implement. Cool. And there was something. Yeah, I love the the way of the principles and values and and the framework that you kind of work and just on this for businesses who look would love to work more on the decision matrix on on their frameworks. uh, Where do you suggest to start because I think this is really, really important, uh, but sometimes there is a lack of understanding about where do I start.
1: So for us, we got in a room together, so the leadership team sat down and I I bought everybody Ray Dalio's book, Principles, and hoped that they read some of it before uh, before we got there. And we just got on the whiteboard and started thinking, what's important to us? How do we want to work together? What is it that's okay? What is it that's not okay? And out of that, we derived the set of principles. And it's important that they're evergreen, you know, they're never finished it's just a continual working in in progress um and we all just started to to work through what's the principle for that and how do we want to operate and i think the key thing is you know once there's something on paper start there see if it works and continue to iterate on it um so it's a live document for us that that we work to but just having it hidden on confluence or in a g drive somewhere is, is not that helpful it needs to then be present with everybody we need to make sure that we're remembering it. And I think that really comes down to the leadership team to make sure that if they are ask, asked the a question, you know, hey, what do we do here? That they're referring back to that. Well, you know, you know our values, you know our principles. What do you think we should do here? And then reinforcing that behavior. Got it.
0: Great. We are coming to the end of the show with uh, our favorite question, uh, which is if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, at the beginning of this journey with the TAP2, what advice would you offer to your younger self?
1: I would have moved to the UK or the US before starting the business. Uh, I think that would be the single, the single thing that I would do differently. Um, other than that, I wouldn't change anything because I think we're in a strong position. It's exciting where we're heading. We wouldn't be here if we'd done things differently. But if I was going to do it again, I would apply a lot of the experiences I've had uh, to that. Um, and that would really be around some of the things I've mentioned. Investing in sales far earlier to gain market share, um, looking at the differentiation of the product. Um, and I think I'd be more niche in, in whatever it was that we did um, because I think you know, every week that goes by, It's easier to to enter a market, Um, certainly a, a, you know, generic market, something like like HR, you know, it's not that difficult to understand. And so I'd be looking at really going down to a niche specialised product where you're not going to come up against as many competitors.
0: Very good points. Biniis be rich. Uh, amazing way of closing the show. Uh, Chris, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: And to our community, uh, thanks so much for being uh, on on that side. Uh, we always love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out via mic at skilletvalley.com to share your and feedback about what topics and guests should we have in the show to help you scale from 2 million to 100 million error. Thank you so much and keep scaling.